The Law Report with Tyrone Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. Well, this evening we're focusing once again on property law and joining me in our Cape Town studios this evening is our regular property law attorney, Marlon Chevalu, who practices as Marlon Chevalu and Associates here in Cape Town. Marlon, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Corin. Always good to be here. These months seem to go by very quickly. You seem to always... Always, you, you know, the, the times between when you come in seem to get shorter and shorter. And the hour show just, I, it flies, just flies by. by. Horrible. It's ridiculous. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> if you have any questions or comments for us, you can call us now on 0892 10 2010. We've got three emails that we need to just get through quickly. And if you'd like to call in now, you can leave your name and number and uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we're done with the three email questions that we have. Marlon, the first one is um, from Sibonello and he says um, he received, he, he bought a property of his own. He came to Johannesburg last year, November 2012. He now wants to cancel or terminate his lease agreement and he wants to know if there's a way that he can give two or three months notice and avoid having to pay cash out of pocket for terminating the agreement it doesn't give me that option he says of which i feel it's a fair option um a company which whose name we can't mention is assisting him with the purchase of the property and he says he's prepared to serve two or three months notice but he's not comfortable with paying extra cash and then a little bit later he sent a follow-up email and he said please take note of the latest development um will i still be liable for any payment or will i forfeit my deposit if this guy's deal is successful. He's secured a possible tenant and the agent has contacted this possible tenant and he's found the guy who's interested to move in at his place he's, and he's given contact details. He's spoken to him. We agreed that if he can move in on the 1st of April, that would be great That of this year. What's the way forward now, he wants? I think, but the bottom line is this whole thing about the terminating this lease agreement. Well, it's actually a very, very simple situation because the Consumer Protection Act allows any tenant to terminate an agreement, a lease agreement in this instance, on 20 business days' notice arbitrarily. In other words, they don't have to give a reason. And now he, by all accounts, came up to Joburg in November last year, yes. so it's not that long ago that he would have signed this Correct. lease agreement. I presume it was signed at least subsequent to the 1st of April 2011, which was the general effective date mm. of the Consumer Protection Act. So you can give 20 business days' notice, and there's nothing that the landlord can do to stop that. So that's a month's notice. That's all he needs to give. He can't, however, avoid a reasonable cancellation penalty. That's... The big point, that though, is the, the big word point. reasonable. But because reasonable hasn't been defined in the Act, in fact, there are several factors in Section 5 of the final regulations, which are a list of items you need to consider to determine what really is reasonable. But again, that's yet to be tested in a court of law. But in this instance, if a new tenant has been secured from April onwards, in that instance, there might be a situation where there may not be a penalty because you cannot hold a tenant liable for a reasonable penalty even if it's agreed to, if the landlord is able to find a new tenant to move in, say, the next month. But there was nothing in this contract, apparently, that gives him an option to terminate the lease. Would there need to be that? Well, it doesn't really matter for the very simple reason that Section 51 of the Consumer Protection Act clearly provides that you can't waive any terms of the Consumer Protection Act. You can't prepare any document which seeks to obviate or avoid the, you know, the implications of the Act. So even if it is not specifically mentioned, the Consumer Protection Act will be deemed to have been read into the lease agreement. So those rental agents, estate agents, landlords who try to be clever and avoid the implications of the Act are just digging themselves a bigger hole. Any tenant with a lease signed after the 1st of April 2011 can read the CPA as applying to that lease agreement, so long as the tenant is an actual person, of course, because there are certain exceptions. The lease should have had it. 
But because it doesn't, it doesn't weaken the tenant's position in any shape or format. So the bottom line is, if he signed the lease after the 1st of April... 2011. 2011, which it sounds like he did. Yes. He has got the option under the Consumer Protection Act to give 20 working days... 20 business days, yeah. 20 working days, 20, 20 business, business days, days yeah. notice. And the fact that he's already found a tenant to go in, on, hopefully, on the 1st of April... Literally, there's a month between, and I would imagine that he would be there for that month, for March. Absolutely. Or at least be willing to give that one month's notice. Because he's talking two or three months. He only really needs to give one month, which is what, what is required by the Consumer Protection Act. And therefore, if he's found a tenant to replace him, he shouldn't then be liable for anything. In fact, what's amazing is that Section 5 of the Final Regulations is one of the items that specifies a person acting diligently being able to find another tenant. What's the general practice of the industry? That's the last point on Section 5. A rental agent acting diligently will be able to find a new tenant relatively quickly. But the most important part, I think, which is missing here is that just because there is a penalty doesn't entitle you to keep the deposit. That deposit is not the landlord's. That deposit is to be used to restore the premises to the way it was at the inception of the lease agreement. He doesn't mention that in here, but I would imagine that that would come up, you know, well, if you're moving out early, I'll keep the deposit. It doesn't work like that. Legally, no. the landlord is not allowed to do that. No, invariably, it may come to a situation where you say, you know what, the property is in good condition, I'm going to keep the deposit as a penalty, but that is not as of right. The the fact that there is a deposit there, the fact that the property is in good condition, doesn't render you the right to keep that deposit just because there's a penalty fee. It doesn't work like that. It's a bit of set-off and a bit of working it out. But just because you agree to the reasonableness of a penalty doesn't mean that is the amount that's going to be agreed to by the National Consumer Commissioner. So in this instance, I do believe he would have a right to have his deposit back unless, of course, the premises are not in a good condition. If he's totally wrecked them, then obviously they're going to have to use the deposit to fix it. But if it's fine, would, that's... But, but on that same merit, if they then use the deposit to fix it up, the landlord is still entitled to a reasonable cancellation penalty if you could not have found a new tenant. So it all comes down to who's moving in, when, what's the condition of the premises. But there's this infused mindset which is totally incorrect that, well, I've got one month's deposit, that is your penalty. That can be agreed to up front, but it depends, once again, if it's reasonable. So he, he actually seems to be in a good position here. Yes. Sibonele, actually, because he's prepared to give two or three months' notice, he only really needs to give one. Correct. He's already found a tenant to move in, hopefully, on the 1st of April. So therefore, there won't be a gap in the in the landlord's income. And no right so, to a penalty. So there's no right to a penalty. So he, he can't really charge him a penalty. And he is still, if the flat is in good condition, he is entitled to his deposit back. The reason why he can't charge a penalty is that if he finds a new tenant and a new tenant moves in and there's no gap in between the two tenancies, that landlord can't be enriched. He can't mm. get a double rental. It's not how it works. So that's why if they're able to find a new tenant to move in, the only potential penalty costs that could be would be maybe advertising on Gumtree. Okay, but it doesn't even sound like he's going to have to do no. that. Because so, Sibonelli found him the tenant. So he's, done, know, everything so he's he can done everything he can to possibly. mitigate the landlord's loss. Absolutely. Quite right. Right. So Sibonelli, you sound like you're in a really good position. If you have any problems, drop us an email and we'll see how we can take that any further. Right. Uh, we had another one from Janinda who says, you once had a talk on rights and responsibilities of people buying bank repossessed property. Who is responsible for ensuring that the occupant is evicted? What recourse does the buyer have if the occupants refuse to vacate? That, unfortunately, is something we're seeing more and more often. It's one of the worst situations when it comes to evictions because bank repossession auctions are very, very simple. A property that has been repossessed by the bank is first offered at an auction with a lease. If it's auctioned with a lease and somebody buys it, then they take over the landlord, they take over the position of the previous owner, and they have to honor that lease in terms of the Hiergaard Voorkoop principle, which means hire will supersede sale. But if the bid 
for any property in a sale and execution is not enough to make the bank happy. The bank doesn't see the full amount coming in to settle the bond. That property will be sold off without a lease. If it's sold without a lease and you buy it, it's your baby. You bear the risk of evicting that tenant. And the biggest irony is you shouldn't be in a position to evict that tenant until you take transfer. So if transfer of the property into your name takes a couple of months, you will bear the risk of not getting any rental, of course, not getting any occupational interest, not getting anything. And not even being able to move in if you bought not it for being your able primary residence. But the funny thing is, though, is that you are actually in possession of the property in terms of the sale. But de facto, if you want to go ahead and evict, I can tell you now that many courts will turn around and say, um, Mrs. Key or Mr. Chevalier, are you the owner of the property? Have you taken transfer? Where is your locus standard? Where is your authority, your position in law to bring an eviction application against the person who is still there? And the worst situation of all is that we get different types of tenants. We get a tenant who had a lease and he won't leave when the lease comes to an end. We have a person that moves in without having the right to be there in the first place. That's what we call a squatter. But those people who own the house have had the bank foreclose on their property and now are not refusing or not going to move. They are the most obstinate people in the world. They feel emasculated. They feel they've been deprived of the roof over their heads. And those are the most difficult evictions to carry out. So what should we do if you're buying a bank repossessed house? Go make around sure, and make sure there's no one in it. Make sure there's no one in it, but make sure that you have a proper letter sent out to this owner, even before you take transfer, saying, hi there, Mr. Owner. Listen, your property has been sold in execution because you were unable to pay your, your mortgage. Therefore, you have no right, in fact, or in law to be occupying the property. We will be taking transfer in due course. We're giving you a notice now to please leave and ensure it goes through smoothly. Obviously, they're going to say, well, go somewhere where the sun doesn't shine. But that doesn't negate the fact that you are entitled to ask them to leave. You have no legal right to oblige them to leave at that juncture because Only you're not the owner. Only once you've taken transfer. Only once you've taken transfer. It's a difficult situation. I don't know so much about buying a bank repossessed house in that case. I've gone, gone right off the part of the risk. Okay. It's part of the risk. Right. Okay. Um, this is from Mpumzi. He says, I need to get your advice on this matter. We bought a property for the church in 2006 privately via a, a firm of attorneys for 150,000 rand. We were told at the time that the company was busy with the registration slash transfer process, but there's a problem of the account with the city of Cape Town. Every time we make a follow-up with them, they tell us that they're waiting for the city of Cape Town to resolve the matter. Towards the end of last year, I decided to go to the city of Cape Town to find out what the problem was, and I was told that the city of Cape Town is not aware of any problem, and the site, I'm assuming that the building or whatever it was, the, mm. the property that they began to build on, owes about 134,000 rand for rates and services. And then a representative from the firm of attorneys told the listener that he, there is an error with that amount because it's not supposed to be that amount. Last week, after making some follow-up with them, he sent me an email stating that we are to, we are to pay the 165,000 rand to the bank account, to their bank account, so that they can clear what the site owes to the city, and from there they can go ahead with their process of registering the property to our church. I'm now asking for the advice, please. I mean, this just sounds like a nightmare. No, look, it's it's and it's it's very much a conveyancing orientated question, but it's not something we haven't at our firm come across before. The long and short is that the rates are not due by a purchaser. It's as simple as that. So that hundred and what is it, 134,000 rand? It's that, not that for the purchaser to pay. It's for the seller to pay. In order for a property to be transferred, there needs to be a rates clearance certificate. Yes. 
the conveyancing attorneys call upon the sellers to say to them, right, we are going to call for a rates clearance certificate, we're going to contact the city of Cape Town, they're going to give us a figure which needs to be paid in order to generate a rates clearance certificate, not dissimilar to a levy clearance certificate for the sale of a body corporate sectional title unit. Once that is done, there is an amount that's paid, probably an extra four months in advance is paid to cover the interim period between the agreement being entered into and potential transfer taking place. So you as a seller pay up all the amounts that are owing, you get a rates clearance certificate, and then the city council says we want you to pay another four months in advance, which you're entitled to claim back as a refund. But what that basically means is the purchaser is not liable for anything, for any conveyancing attorney, and that's why I think there may be a bit of confusion here. I don't think a conveyancer would call upon a purchaser to pay rates. Because they're telling them they now have to pay 165000 so there's another 30-odd thousand that they've suddenly added on to this 134. It makes no sense to me. If anything, the problem here lies is that the seller did not pay those amounts. It also says, I'm told that, that there was summons issued to the owners of the site with no response. Well, what do you do in that case when, when somebody just refuses point blank to pay up the rates so that you, they can get the clearance certificate to sell it? Well, the bottom line is that I, the transfer can't go through without a rates clearance. Mm. So what is actually happening here is that the purchase is, uh, is suffering damages. What needs to happen is that the seller needs to be sued for the amount outstanding. And somehow or another, there needs to be a right to reclaim those amounts because that purchaser has paid a purchase price. The conveyances have to ensure that that rates clearance is obtained. How they do it is entirely up to them. But the bottom line is that the purchaser is sitting with the situation. I don't know how much he's paid. No, they didn't say has not taken place yet. I don't know if he's in occupation yet. But the bottom line is that there needs to be a judgment obtained against these sellers. They need to get that money. If that money is not obtained, you can have a situation of a property that cannot be transferred, that is sitting in the deeds office for a number of years, and I don't know how long it's been sitting there already. But it bought it in 2006. Well, I mean, that in itself is a big concern. I'm curious to know what money has been paid by the purchaser. And they said they, pay, they bought it for 150000 Now they're being told they've got to pay 165000 so they can clear what, what the site owes the city. You know, the, 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 the only other suggestion I could make, which again is thinking out the box, and it's something that he might need to consider, he needs to consider that five years later, what is the property worth? If he had to pay that extra 135000 rand, and I'm not saying he's liable for it, but let's assume he did pay it, he then would be able to get transfer of the property. The property would have capital appreciation over the last couple of years. He then would have a right to sue this previous seller for the full 265,000 rand. Right, by the sounds of it, the seller's just taking no notice of anybody. Well, the seller needs a judgment against himself or alternatively an application to sequestrate him because that will bring some lucidity to the picture. But at the moment in time, I'm just concerned about the fact that the purchaser was not made aware of what those rates were because I can tell you now, had he known what those rates were, he might not have entered into the agreement. So can you can you can you um, sort of cancel an agreement because of something like this? Of course, you can. Okay. Absolutely. Obviously, there are going to be consequential damages arising from that. The conveyancing attorneys, the estate agent is entitled well, to a commission. Well, they've already paid one hundred and fifty thousand rand. That's sitting somewhere. But if the deal is if the deal is brought to a close, what usually happens is that the people are restored to the way they were, as if the agreement never took place. In that situation, he should get his money back plus interest. Does the agent keep their commission? Does the conveyancing attorney take any fees? It's, a, it's an unfortunate situation, and this is why I don't <laughs> engage in conveyancing, but I can tell you now that the purchaser is in a very tough spot. If it's now seven years later and transfer hasn't taken place, that's an incredibly serious situation. I would suggest you go and see an alternative conveyancer, gives them the full facts, all the agreements, and ask them to, to apply Have a look at it at least. Without question. With absolutely. It sounds like a nightmare. So, okay, so we don't like conveyancing. We're not into buying bank repossessed properties. That's sort of given me that for the evening. Right, our first caller on the line, Buffo in Cape Town. Good evening. Good evening, ma'am. Hello, how are you? 
I'm well, thanks yourself. I'm fine, thank you. You actually wrote to us and then we said we'd give you a call and you want to talk about transfer. You bought a piece of land in East London, another one of these, 1998, and you still haven't got the plot transferred onto your name. That's right. Right, so tell but, us what happened. Yeah, um, the it was an auction there. Eh? And then I was, uh, we were told that uh, we're going to be, the property is going to be transferred by the, the municipality. But later on, they changed that. They said they must appoint our own attorneys, of which I, I did. Then our my attorney's correspondence with the City Council of East London didn't, I mean, uh, supply the necessary documents for the transfer. That took almost eight years or so. No, this now, is unheard of. Yeah. It's, just tell me, you said the City Council. Who were you mean, buying? The, the, the Buffalo City. Okay, now, who were you buying this property from? From the Buffalo City, the municipality. So you're buying it from the municipality? Yes. Okay. Or in an auction by municipality. In an auction, okay. So you're saying that transfer has not taken place in since 1998? Yes. There's something very, very wrong here. I mean, this is, this is I've never seen anything take as long as that. Like 15 years. No, that's, that's absolutely insane. Um, let me ask you a question. Your attorneys that you've appointed, uh, I'm curious why you would have appointed your attorneys, because usually the seller has the choice of choosing the conveyancing attorney. He was told they have to get their own attorneys now to try yeah, and move this which, along. Which is fine. Yeah. What have your attorneys done to try and get the transfer done, Buffo? They've done all what they, what they were saying to me. The, 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 the Buffalo City doesn't provide the, the necessary documents for the transfer. Can I, can I, <clears throat> what I think you need to do is to speak to your attorneys and ask them possibly if they can't consider bringing an application to the High Court compelling the Buffalo municipality to effect transfer. Because the logic is, you have no rights over that property until you take transfer. It still belongs to the municipality until that property is registered against your name in the, in the title deed at the deeds office. I'm a little bit disturbed that your attorneys have maybe not mentioned that to you, but in our law, there's something called what we call, it's, it's a nice fancy word, Buffo. It's called a declarator. A declarator means you can bring an application to court, sort of like an interdict, compelling another party to perform in terms of their contractual obligations. Their obligations here is to ensure that property is transferred into your name. So I do think that you need to approach your attorney or maybe even another set of attorneys and ask them why they have not approached the Supreme Court or the High Court as we call it, compelling the municipality to force transfer of the property into your name. That's the view I would give you as a litigating attorney. But you see, the problem is now the, the rates have escalated up to 129,000. But in that situation, the rates would have not escalated had the property taken tra- property been transferred years ago. The fact that the rates have escalated, again, is not you. It's not your fault. Mm. It's the purchaser. The municipality, if they are the sellers, would need to sort out those rates. So because the property isn't yet in Buffer's name, he's not liable for the rates. Am I correct? No, of course not. Okay, so and that's not your problem, Buffer. He's only they're liable the, from the date of transfer onwards. That's not your, your but, problem. But what they're saying, they say, no... In the agreement, in the beginning, uh, we agreed that the rates will be paid by myself. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't believe you are liable for rates. Rates are taxes payable on a property due by the owner. So, and you don't own it yet. You don't own it. You haven't owned it for 15 years. I do think you need to go to an attorney who is quite bullish, uh, much like myself, and Mm. somebody who can say to you, right, 
Let's look at the local municipality. Let's look at the agreement. Let's bring an application to court. Yes, it's a costly procedure, but at this moment in time, you've paid an amount of money, presumably. You are willing to pay the balance once the property is transferred. There are rates that are outstanding. 15 years have gone by. And the, another problem that jumps out at me is that in our law, there is an issue of, of prescription. So the question is, do you potentially have a claim? You only have a claim for a period of three years from the date that that claim arose. So there needs to be something done here. 15 years is just absolutely abnormal. Not in 14 years of practice have I seen something. To, write, to, to sign the certificate now. No, no. It's, you do need to go and find another set of attorneys. You need to get all your documents together and find another lawyer, pay them for an hour or two to apply their minds and let them advise you properly because this is just completely unfair. 15 years is something, it's a decade and a half. Now, I mean, is that contract still valid now? There's a possibility it may not be valid, but I can tell you now that a sale agreement has a lifespan to it. The problem is prescription. That, well, that's, so that's, that's my concern. I'm I mean, that's for a debt. Years. I mean, that, that is for, you know, if you want to if you want to take action against somebody, if you want to sue the Buffalo municipality to force them to perform, they're going to turn around and say, well, you know, you had that right, but it ended 12 years ago. So it could be a very difficult situation. It also depends on what communications have been sent by the municipality, what their reasons are, why the rates weren't paid by them. You know, there's a whole lot of issues that need to be sorted out here. And you need to get absolute clarity from a set of attorneys who predominantly are litigating attorneys those attorneys who will go to court not even a conveyance as such but an attorney who's willing to take on the local municipality that's the best okay. advice i can give you thank you very much sir okay, good luck well, good please, luck it sounds please let us know what happens because it know. sounds like an absolute nightmare and we'd really like to know hopefully you'll get this sorted out but please do drop me an email and let me know how it goes i'll, I'll do so okay thanks buffo have a good evening right, bye now much. good night Right, gosh, it seems quite an, uh, a hectic evening tonight, Marlon. <laughs> right, hopefully, hopefully Enid isn't in such a bad situation. Enid and Robertson, good oh, evening. Okay, uh, good evening to both of you. Hello, Enid. I don't know if this question is relevant to this program, but I hope you can help me. I'm very inquisitive to know. If you buy a house hmm. or you inherit a house, then you've got to have that house put onto your name. Yes. Now, I want to know who determines or how is it determined or who, uh, the amount that you pay to have the house put on your name, or isn't there really such thing? Is it only that you pay the attorney to to go to the deeds office and all that? If you are left a house in terms of a will, there is no transfer duty. There's no transfer duty between the testator to the will and the beneficiary of the will. So the house would automatically be put into your name. There would be a fee payable to an attorney for ensuring that's done, but no transfer duty. But isn't that just for spouse? If you leave it to a child, then there is a transfer duty. Any beneficiary? Oh, the spouse for sure. My understanding of... Dis no, as far as I'm aware, from knowing from a family situation, that when the house was left to a child, that child had to actually find the money to pay the transfer, the, the transfer duty to put it into her name. Well, I can tell you now that when it comes it wasn't to me, by the way, but I'm just you know, <laughs> somebody else I know in the family. Had for, to, well, the spouse for sure, but my understanding is that when it comes to a child as well, I, I don't think that applies. But you know what? Again, that's more along the lines of testate and interstate succession, which is administration of estates. So it's the kind of thing where I would say to you rather go to an attorney who specialises in that. I do think. No, I'm just inquisitive to know. It's, it's 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 just something I inherited my house, and I um, in, in what capacity as a wife to my name and, and as a everything. But what I mean is the, the, the money, or, or as you say, there's mm. no uh, money uh, payable to have that done. I only, uh, uh, the, uh, the money includes the, 
uh, what I paid to the attorney to 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 do the, the will and everything. No, 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 that's no. exactly how it works. No, the way it works is again we're talking about an area of law which uh, I, I like dealing with alive clients and not dead clients. Mm. But uh, in this instance, when the executor, when the attorney drafts the liquidation and distribution account, yeah. drafts the documentation to wind up the estate, yeah. the yeah. cost of the transfer to whoever it might be, is mm. worked into as part of the estate. Oh, okay. So you as a beneficiary, mm. in terms of a will, mm. would receive that asset. Mm. And mm. all the information, all the costs would be mm. factored into mm. the actual cost of the estate. Mm. Um, I will check up with regard to the child having to pay transfer duty. As far as I'm aware, it's not, but... Um, I'm, well, I mean, I'm just... I mean, Corinne's hands there. I think no, it's, no, no, it's just, it's just that I know from what I've sort of put down, we have one son, and I know that in, in my will I've had to make provision for there to be cash available for him to pay for the transfer costs of putting the house in his name. So an insurance policy of some sort to pay out? No, it's just, it's just that I've, you, know, you have to make provision for that sort of thing because if it's not a spouse and it's a child, the chi- that they have to pay the transfer It's duty. automatic between spouses. Yes, much also, it is automatic between spouses, but not between children, parents and children. And as long as, as you far put as I know. I tend to agree with you, Karen. I've also heard that story. Mm. That is true. Yes. What's amazing, though, is that you need to put a clause in the will that in the event that that child of yours is married in community of property, that any property left to them is excluded from the community of property regime. Uh, oh, that's I in my uh, If the child is, is a minor then, and, and he inherits the money, uh, the house, then there must the, be money for him. Yeah, but then it will be held in, in, a, uh, held in trust it'll or be something. Yes, yes. It will be what we call a testamentary trust, which mm. will kick into action once he reaches a certain age. Mm. But in any case, thank you very much for your help. Thanks for being inquisitive, yes. Thanks, thank you. Enid. Good okay. evening to you. All right. Good thank night you. to you. Bye-bye. Yeah, no, it's, all, it's terribly expensive, you know, when you inherit things. It's, you don't just get them for nothing. No, but you have a choice to either elect or, or to ideate. So you can choose or not choose to accept that inheritance. I mean, it's one thing drafting a will, but winding up an estate, it, mm. you make a conscious choice. So you can, for example, in terms of a will, step into the shoes of the previous member of a close corporation, not being aware of all the liabilities that attach mm. to it. So it's a very dangerous thing. You think, oh, wow, I'm a beneficiary. I get this. Many people can repudiate that. The thing. other thing you mentioned just very briefly there is, is mm. something that I have actually put in my will, because yes. I'm one of those mothers, that if you leave something to a child, um, I've actually stated there that if in the event of a community of property, marriage, or um, an antenuptial contract with a cruel and all that sort of thing that whatever he inherits does not form part of that community of property or a cruel at all so it stays for him so it's amazing the wife decides to run off and leave him she doesn't get half of the stuff i left him yeah because i mean you know know, many people believe that not marrying by way of community property is against god because that's how god proclaimed it man and wife share everything a penny and a pound in this instance you can talk from beyond your grave to prevent your spouse's wife or your spouse's husband, whoever it might be, from sharing in something which has been left to them. And that's quite something. Mm, yeah, but as I said, that's just me. Right, <laughs> off to Johannesburg to set. So, good evening. Good evening, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How can we help you? Um, well, I have a couple of questions around administration. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so what I need to know is um, if, if a lawyer gives a quote and they don't necessarily give you a rate per hour and they are linked to the administrator. I mean, is that possible? Because it's as though now we're being forced into uh, agreeing to pay legal fees, but we don't know at what rate per hour and how long um, applications are going to take and so on. So So what, do they just give you a flat rate at the very beginning? 
and it's an estimated Oh, so they, they haven't they haven't given you a flat rate and said if I do this work for you, it's going to cost you say fifty thousand rand, for example. They've just it's on a sliding scale where at some point they're going to tell you how much you owe them, but you don't know at the moment. Yes, so they're saying that, um, say for example, um, I do this application for you. If it's opposed, it could go up to fifty, eighty, hundred thousand. Um, if it's not opposed. It could be twenty thousand, give or take. We'll see. Is know? this just for general work? I'm just curious. Uh, I'm just curious. In, in, on what basis? So, are you are you are you asking me? You go to an attorney to ask him to do something for you. What have you asked him to do as a matter of interest? Well, basically, we have asked him to apply for administration in a building where I own a unit. You mean you, you want to put? Uh, I'm just trying to understand in what context. Well, let's ignore the context. No, you, he owns, he owns a, you, you own a unit. Yes, I own a unit in a block of flats. Okay, and what and, do you need to happen? Uh, well, we're trying to apply for the building to go under administration. Oh, okay. So you're looking in terms yes. of the Sectional Titles Act, you want a building. Obviously, the building is giving a lot of problems. Would that be correct? Yes. Okay. Correct, well, yeah. I can tell you now that attorneys work very differently. Um, we, we, we're quite an interesting bunch of people. But attorneys can agree to a flat rate or they can agree to an hourly rate or they can agree to both. So, you know, the, the kind of job of, of an administration requires a high court application. I think it's Section 74 of the Sectional Titles Act. But be that as it may... What an attorney would do is an attorney would say to you, listen, to bring in an application of this nature in terms of the Sectional Titles Act, it, application actually empowers that attorney to step into the shoes of all the trustees of the body corporate at that particular time. They will tell you an application of this nature can cost 30,000 Rand or 40,000 Rand because you've got to draft a notice, you've got to draft an affidavit, you've got to get all the facts, and you've got to brief an advocate to appear in the High Court. You can only get an administration application done in the High Court. They will give you a fee as to how long it will take, but of course, if it gets opposed, it might be opposed with 100 pages, it might be opposed with 10 pages. If it is opposed, then you've got to file replying papers, you've got to drop heads of argument. So an attorney will say to you, listen, I can agree to a flat fee, but that, in my opinion, would be, would be a bit fallacious, because to agree to 50,000 rand, and the matter ends up becoming a massive matter. So what they could say is, listen... Um, so where it's going to work is we charge 25,000 Rand to draft the papers. If it's unopposed, we appear in court, we get our final order, and that's your fee. But in the event it gets opposed, how long is a piece of string? So in that instance, um, even though it may be a set thing, it could only be a set thing, just like an eviction. We would charge 5,000 Rand, which we do for an eviction. Straightforward, unopposed, that's what it costs, that's our set fee. If it becomes opposed, anything can happen. It can go to trial, it can be kicked into touch for a couple of months, we might need five appearances, they might approach uh, a high court, anything could happen. So to lock yourself into a capped fee or a flat fee, not knowing if the matter is going to be opposed or not, would be very, very short-sighted in my opinion. I hope this is answering your question, but an administration application whereby you're seeking to dethrone the trustees or to step into the shoes of the trustees to put the building under administration is not an easy thing, and there would be a set fee on an unopposed basis, but if the matter becomes opposed, which usually it will, because any building that's put under administration is going to have a great uh, detrimental effect on the value of the units in the property because people are going to see that it's under administration and immediately think that there's no money in the kitty and that there are bad owners and bad tenants. So it's a kind of application where you might find many of the trustees opposing it and going to yeah. their own attorneys. So again, how long is a piece of string? That's the so what, what the Tetzel was told is quite, it's quite acceptable. I would say it's absolutely acceptable. 
unfortunately it's said so that's exactly how it works so you, what you, can do, you just don't know really what you can do is say to the attorneys listen once you hit the cap of 40,000 rand please let us know or give us a breakdown of anticipated costs they'll say well these are the potential costs but they will never commit ever commit to what the exact costs will be because again nobody knows what could happen in a court of law but just make sure they keep you informed so that you Absolutely. don't suddenly get a bill for 200,000 rand at the end of the story and you're expecting 40,000 so Quite tell right. them that they must tell you as the bill is going up you need to be kept informed as to exactly what is happening and how much this bill is okay hope all that right. helps you all right thank you so much okay, Thanks, so good luck with that good night to you you tune to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key, and this is The Law Report. My guest tonight is Marlon Chevalu, and he's an attorney practicing here in Cape Town as Marlon Chevalu and Associates. And this evening, we're discussing property law. If you have any questions, you can call us on 0892-102010, 0892-102010. Mike in Johannesburg, good evening. Good evening. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm cool, thank you. Very okay. lovely Program. Good, thank you. How Thanks, can we Mike. help, Mike? Yeah, I just want to check here. Someone uh, that was renting my property, and there was a giver based three days just before the end of the month. Then she decided to move out and did not pay for the month. And she moved out. But before moving out, she locked my premises. First, she informed me that there was a giza test on the very same day when she got back from work and found that there was a giza test. Then I made plans to attend to the problem. And then while working on attending to the program, problem, she blocked the premises for two weeks. We just communicated over the phone. She didn't want to pay. She didn't want to hear anything from me. I was frustrated. I got the insurance guys to come and fix the property quickly. We couldn't access the premises. Uh, eventually, she, she came when I, I don't know whether it was in the evening, but she took her stuff away and everything. The house was left empty. So I organized somebody to break the, 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 the premise, the door, the locks, because now it's my property. There's no, she didn't have her items in the house. We fixed whatever was supposed to be fixed there, and then the house was back to normal. But now she's putting a claim on me to say that the giza, when it tested, it uh, got her, her, her rooms wet, and then she's claiming damage to a, a size of a tune of money for that. My question is, who is liable for homeowners insurance? Because my understanding is, she rented the property. As she moves in, she, she should carry the debate in terms of insuring the household property. Let me ask you a question. Look, the, the short answer there is that it's always in the interest of the person occupying the property, the tenant, to insure their own movables if they brought their own movables in. You are liable for your insurance for the actual property itself. Which would cover the geezer. Which would cover the geezer. And the fact that I you put an insurance claim in shows that. But that's not what's jumping out at me. The question I need to ask you, because this is where the, the entire matter turns. Tell me, was there an incoming inspection? Was there an inspection of the property when you moved in? Before you and the tenant met up and the tenant moved into the property, was there an incoming inspection to work out or to assess what was in the property and the condition of the property? Yes, there was. Okay, because what, what I need to tell you is that 
When she left, even though she leaves in the dead of night, there still has to be an outgoing inspection. Was there an outgoing inspection? No, we couldn't do it. She just disappeared. She disappeared. Because the, the logic is this. If, for whatever reason, in terms of the Rental Housing Act, you're unable to do an outgoing inspection or the tenant doesn't come to the outgoing inspection, that tenant will have no right in law or in fact to claim any damages she has suffered. That's the, that's the compromise that the Rental Housing Act tells you. If, for example, you don't go to the outgoing inspection and the tenant does arrive, in that instance, you would not be able to claim any damages from the deposit that you hold on her behalf. So she may claim something, but the fair fact is that she didn't give you an opportunity to remedy any breach or any defect. She locked the premises, which was clearly an act that she didn't want to be bound to this lease agreement. But she she wouldn't pay, and then she still locks the premises. No, it's, it's, no, it's a farce. Legal. No, I don't believe she has any claim in law because that you, if you had been allowed access to your own property, you would have remedied the defect. You might have even given her a little bit of a rebate. At that stage, she would have brought your attention damages. What has happened now is that she obviously wants her deposit back. And she's saying to us, to you, well, she suffered damages. Those damages are completely immaterial at this moment because there was no outgoing inspection. There is nothing to record any damages that she suffered. And how do you know she even suffered damages if she removed everything before you could even get in there? So it could have been damaged after she left. Absolutely. No, there's no ways, in my opinion, she would succeed on anything. And any claim that comes along, you must resist it. Because I believe that is an absolute joke. Can I claim for uh, one failure to pay? And secondly, for breach of contract, because we have a, a, a year contract. When was, the, when was the agreement signed? It was signed in July, and it was supposed to run until the end of June this year. July well, this, last year. If the then tenant left, look, I can tell you now that the tenant obviously didn't give you, didn't cancel on 20 days lease. They, they left. Uh, you know, they didn't use Section 14 of the Consumer Protection Act. I yes. do believe that you would be entitled to certainly lay claim, at least for some penalty. But more than that, your any damages that you've suffered as a result of her leaving early. So I do believe that you will definitely have a claim, at least for some rental, at least for any excess in premiums you have to pay now because of your insurance. And I don't believe she's got any claim at all. You know, just because the Consumer Protection Act allows you to terminate a lease, it's got to be done on proper notice. She has not given proper notice. She also has prevented a possibility of performance on your part. So she can't turn around and say, you've acted incorrectly. The geezer burst. Well, then you get a chance to fix it up. You call the insurance company, you invoke your policy, but you can't get into the property. She's locked it. So she's prevented any possibility of you mitigating against her loss. So I truly believe you're entitled to claim rental if you can prove that you were unable to find a new tenant and you're able to claim damages for her breaching the contract. Normally what happens is if she's breached the contract, you'd be entitled to claim from her any damages that you have suffered or any loss of income that you would not have lost had she stuck to the agreement. So it's, for me, it's a pretty much clear case. And I think it's quite cheeky on her part to come along and try claim damages from you when she's prevented you from mitigating those damages. And I have to ask, can, he, can, can Mike claim for the broken door now? Because he, made, he had to break the door because she locked it. Absolutely. Right, Mike, you can claim for the door too. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes, thank you. I didn't even think about it. Unbelievable. Can I ask another question, please? Um, I'm starting with this one, a very quick one. Okay. Yeah, I sold the house, and then in the process of the transfer of uh, property to the new owner's name, mm-hmm. they went to the conveying officers, that is the new owners now. In fact, before they became the new owners, the, the, the possible new owners. 
they went to the uh, transferring of uh, uh, conveyance attorneys yes. uh, uh, 20 days before the actual transfer, in fact, 25 days before the actual transfer took place. Yes. And then they said they want to move into the house. Yes. That is my house. But when, when we signed the, 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 the contract, that is the deed of sale, they didn't, they said they were not, they will only move into the house Transfer. After the registration. Yes. But in the middle of the whole process, 20 days, 25 days before the actual registration, they went to the attorneys to say they want to move into the house. So okay. they searched for me, that is the conveying offices, uh, attorneys. Then I get the key, the, that is the new guys. I gave them the key, I, took, I walked with them to the house, we did the inspection, they moved into the house. But then when I ask for payment for moving into the house now, they are refusing to pay. They say the conveyance attorneys did not tell them that they need to pay because they moved in before the actual registration. That's occupational interest, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Mm. It's occupational rent or occupational interest. Those, those purchasers, and they're not the owners yet, would need to pay an amount which is a little bit, probably a little bit less than the bond amount as an yes. occupational consideration, it's what we call occupational interest or occupational rental, which they would pay until transfer takes place. I can yes. assure you right now, there would have had to have been an addendum to that sale agreement to facilitate them taking transfer or them taking occupation prior to transfer. I, I cannot believe... What, where they standing now, their point of argument is there was no addendum. Fine. Well, then your conveyancing attorneys have acted negligently. Can he claim that money from them? Absolutely. If the conveyancing attorneys, and, I'm, and I, said, I don't know the whole story, and I'm always very loathsome to, to take on a colleague, but if your conveyancing attorneys, firstly, did not explain it, but even if they didn't explain it, there is no way that they would have allowed for the keys to be handed over or for these people to take occupation before transfer takes place. Because what would happen then is they would move in, they would turn around and say, you know what, we're not tendering the final amount against registration yeah, of transfer. We went, to the, we went to the commissioner. They, 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 I took them to the small claims. Then the commissioner there said, I have no case because there was nothing no, nothing written down. I said, but when a person moves into your house and you are accompanying them because of the instruction from the convenience attorneys, they actually push the, 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 the attorneys to... For, for them to, to be given a key to move into my house. No, and I was okay with that. And then I, I Of course you were okay because you were led to believe that you'd be receiving occupational rental, which is nice yes. because you basically are waiting for transfer to go through. You're still paying a bond, but you get a bit of money towards your bond before transfer yes, takes right. place. Wonderful. But it doesn't make sense for that to happen without an addendum. If you are 100% certain there was no addendum, which could only have been signed between you and the purchaser because it's an agreement between a seller and a purchaser, and there was no addendum presented to you by the convention attorneys, then you must go to the Law Society and you must take these conveyances on. That, I can tell you now, if that didn't happen. I struggle to believe that it didn't happen because a conveyancing attorney, in my understanding, would, would never simply allow for the keys to be handed over to give possession, which is nine-tenths of the law, possession to a purchaser before the purchase price had been finally paid. Because then you have to bring an eviction application should they not pay the balance of the purchase price. So it's, I think you must definitely be very clear on what has happened 
uh, and then certainly consider your your, your legal obligations. And, and that's to the Law Society in, in uh, Johannesburg. And report report, and report these this. attorneys. And then mm. the, if these convincing attorneys acted negligently, and as I say, I don't know if they have, I haven't seen anything, in that instance, they would be duty-bound to report themselves to their fidelity fund, and there would yeah. be money available to pay you out. But it's it's something that I struggle to believe, because that's law 101 for a convincing attorney. Any And just lastly, if I might may add, any changes to any sale agreement would need to be reduced to writing and signed between the parties. This would be a complete variation of the agreement. It could never have been done orally. So, he sh- you, Mike, you should have had to sign something. Could never have been done orally. They in my should, you should have had to. So, just have a look again at the papers and possibly contact the Law Society up where you are, and uh, hopefully they can help you. Mike, we Thank have you to. Thank you so much. I really appreciate pleasure about taking. So no, long. no, no, it's uh, fine. What is your email address so that I, I, I was able to phone? I could have sent okay. you an email. It's law at safm.co.za. Wonderful, have a pleasant evening. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Good evening, good night yeah. to you. William in Cape Town, good evening. Hello, William. Hello, William. Hello, sorry, sorry. Oh, oh, there you are. Hello. Hi. Hi. Sorry, good evening. Hi, hello. How can we help you, William? Yes, uh, I just wanted to know, um, Some uh, my friend signed a uh, contract uh, offered to purchase uh, through an estate agency and then upon checking, found that they're not registered with the estate agent's board. Mm. Now, and these people now deny that and say, no, we are registered, blah, 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 and all that. Yes. So what happens in a case like that? Well, in this instance, you know, it's not really a big concern for the very simple reason that the Fidelity Fund certificate obliges them or entitles them to receive a commission. But the sale agreement is between a seller and a purchaser. So if the seller is willing to sell and the purchaser is willing to buy, the only issue at play is that whether or not the estate agent will get the commission. So I don't see a problem. That won't scupper the deal. If there's a willing buyer and a willing seller, the fact that the estate agent who probably use their own sale agreement on is not registered will not in my opinion have any impact on the deal and what may be happening is that and regretfully this is what's happening now with the estate agency affairs board which is now being rescued by um by a few people my colleague Tazwil papier uh, and brian chaplog who's the acting ceo of the estate agency affairs board a brilliant man uh-huh. um they will turn around and say, well, you know, they don't get the commission but the deal still goes through so that's not going to happen the only problem you're going to have is um well, it's for the seller because the seller would pay the commission to the estate agent. If the estate agent might turn around and say, well, we did apply for our fidelity fund certificate, but we haven't got it yet, that's a plausible you know, is there no issue? Is there no issue with money paid over that's held in trust and that no, could they're, go they're, missing? They're, or? They're, but there wouldn't be because what Brian Chaplock has said, and he recently addressed us at a wonderful meeting with the Institute of Estate Agents, is that anyone who purports to be an estate agent, even if they aren't, entitles any person who is involved in the transaction to have the protection of the estate agency affairs board. Oh, right, okay. So in that instance, I don't believe it to be a problem. Um, What you would need to do as a purchaser, if you've paid presumably a 10% deposit, just find that that has been invested in a Section 32 interest-bearing account, bearing the name of the purchaser. So that's what you would need to find out because that commission will come out of there and the balance will be payable to the estate agent against registration of transfer. But uh, the, the, what you need to find out is if they aren't registered, and um, I see you are phoning from Cape Town and I'm fearful yeah. I might exactly know who, who the estate agent is, um, you can do you can give me a shout and we can do some checks for you, but okay. you would need them to give a guarantee that the money is sitting in an interest-bearing account. But even if it is sitting in an account, they are not entitled to their commission if they're not 
and a state agent. And if that money has disappeared, and I'm not saying it has, you will have a claim as a purchaser. Your friend will have a claim against the Estate Agency Affairs Board for the actions of this illegal, illegally trading purported estate agent. So oh. not all doom and gloom, if it's any consolation. William, if you, if you want to drop us a line, you can do so. I'll pass it on to Marlon. The, the email yeah. address is law at SAFM. Sure. Uh, so we still protect it, even if yes. he's yeah. not registered with the estate agent. I would say so, absolutely. Since 2005, actually. Uh, well, that I mean, that's the words of, of the Brian Chaplog, who is the acting CEO of the Estate Agency Affairs Board, because there are a lot of people out there who don't have fidelity fund certificates, and the Estate Agency Affairs Board believes it shouldn't be incumbent upon purchasers to, to lose their money and to, to be out of pocket because there are people who are purporting to be estate agents. And it's, so it's not a criminal offence, or they can't be charged in any which way? If they have stolen trust money, uh, it is a complete criminal offence, absolutely. But a criminal proceedings is not going to bring you your money back. The civil proceedings that are instituted by a court of law or in a court of law or by the Estate Agency Affairs Board is what brings the money back. That's the Fidelity Fund coverage. That's the money that's available um, to people who have suffered at the hands of those people who are okay. at the hands of estate agents. Uh, it's a criminal offence if you can prove the money was stolen, of course. Yes. Uh, can one mention the name of the company? No, no, no. no, no probably no, don't. No, please don't, William. Uh, yeah, please don't. No, don't do that. Because <laughs> they haven't got right of reply and we can't, we can't have that one-sided story, e- unfortunately. But if you want to drop us an email, you're welcome to do that and I can pass it on to Marlon. As I said, the email address is law at safm.co.za and then I'll forward it on to Marlon. Just, just one what, quick warning. Just one quick warning, though, sure. William. When you make that allegation, just be certain that you're just making an allegation and you're not stating it as fact. Because next thing you've published to me, a third party, or to Karen, who's a third party, information about an estate agent. And if it transpires that you're wrong and they're correct, you are potentially up for a defamation claim. So be careful. Yeah, that, that's if you've been public, isn't it? No. Any like dissemination no, to a third bank. party is, is, is defamation. Okay. We'll just pretend we didn't see it. See what? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can okay. they also, William, uh, very quickly, because we've got yeah. a load of calls and we're running out of time. Very quickly. Can they insist on putting in a clause, uh, a 72-hour clause? In other words, you sign, you agree in a certain figure, and then they can then decide to sell it to somebody else if there's no, if it's a little bit more or if it's no suspense of conditions. You or get middle like clauses. You get clauses where a cash deal might trump a, a clause which is subject to getting a bond granted. So that's absolutely fine. Uh, I don't see a problem with that at all, no. So as long as as long as the specific condition is not fulfilled, then the deal can go through. But a cash buy can unfortunately trump uh, a suspensive condition. That's why cash is king. So that is definitely possible, and it's not an unusual clause to see in a sale agreement. Lastly, a few months ago, I don't know if it was you, that you said you would look into the SPY Act that the, uh, to do in which in order, because the first thing when the ANC came into power, when the crossroads... Uh, Squatter cables, bulldozers, and all the overseas people were taking photos when the old government was still uh, in power. Mm-hmm. So, because that uh, Pi Act was only intended for people squatting, they had to give them alternative accommodation. But now it seems turned around that we that have private homes, we can't even evict a drug addict that's uh, moved into the property mm. or just moved in illegally, which has happened. And, and is, isn't there some loopholes? How are we protected in that regard? Could uh-huh. you maybe make a program on this? Okay, well, yes. I'm, well, I'm, I'm happy I'll, to I'll, dedicate an entire we'll, hour to we'll the Pi d- Act. We'll do that. And uh, William, I must thank you for getting okay. through because we need to try and get at least one more call in tonight. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Thanks so much for the call. Thanks, right, William. Good, good night luck. to you. Wandile in Bloemfontein. Good evening. Good evening to both of you. Hi, how, how can we help? I uh, just need to ask, if one is in a sectional title scheme, 
mm-hmm. which is administered by an independent uh, rental house, administering it on, on behalf of the trustees of the sectional of the body corporate. Mm-hmm. And they, for one reason, okay, uh, sourced um, these advertising boards, which is placed on, on, on the wall of the seven-story building, Whose income is that from that advertising board? Is it the body cop or is it the person whose whose wall or whose border? It's a very good question, on? actually. Yeah, there's one. There's one like that in town in Cape Town. If you sort of drive down Long Street, there's one right at the end of the building. It's a huge thing. Often wondered who gets the rental on that. Well, I can tell you that my previous firm we used to represent a very very big auto media advertising company, and. With regard to the body corporate, I, I, it, the, the issue is who does that wall belong to? It's a common wall. It's an outside wall. So yeah. the outside wall would be the body corporate who would benefit, I mean, in, in my opinion. Um, if it's outside your individual unit, potentially it could be yours. But I think that the body corporate should benefit, and I think the benefit should be passed on by way of rebate of levies or whatever the case might be. But it would be on the external parameters, and that would be for the body corporate. Nobody owns it. Everyone has an undivided half share in that. So I think every individual owner would benefit from that. Um, but I'd like to, I would apply my mind to that. It's a very interesting question. I know for a fact, though, that with that billboard, there's a certain amount of free, um, first month's rent is free. You pay to have uh, that billboard up there. The advertisers pay. I can't see the advertiser paying for the placement of that billboard to any individual. Not at all. I would believe it would go to the owners because all the owners would have to bear this advertising, potentially defacing their mm. building. It's an aesthetic question. And it's a question, because it's aesthetics, there would have to be a quorum of trustees to authorize that. And those trustees represent all the owners. So it would be a trustee's decision. And if it is a trustee's decision, it is on behalf of the owners, and therefore it can only be of benefit to the owners. Wendila, are you having a problem with the billboard? <laughs> Not really. I'm, 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 are you benefiting? My interpretation <laughs> is that that should be my my benefit, not the one of the body cop. No, no, but but don't forget the body corporate. Because the the, the way the board is mounted, is mounted with Mm. the mountings inside. That's the thing. It's not not mounted separately outside. Inside, uh, the mountings come through the wall into your... Through, exactly. Wow. Oh. That's a different story. And without that... The board wouldn't stand. No, in that instance, and as you as the owner of that unit, no, then definitely there's a different situation there. Um, would you be able to contact me? Because I'd like to look more into that. I mean, obviously, I, I have to tell you how we work, whatever, but that is a very interesting thing because that's intruding into your space. Uh, that could certainly be an income which, which potentially you should be the beneficiary of because that is potentially implicating you or alternatively uh, defacing your unit. Uh, did we, was your authority obtained in order to do that? No, not really. Because wow. I only saw this mounted and I thought, what's this? And then when I asked, they said, no, we were organizing for the body corporate. And I contended, but the way it's mounted... It's mounted inside. Without wow. the inside wall, it wouldn't stand. No, no, that's a different oh, story. Okay. Again, I would have to know, when you do an email, just let me know who the managing agents are, so I'm not conflicted. Regretfully, I, I represent a lot of managing agents. and a, quite a number of content, so hopefully you won't. Uh, well, could be a... We, we, we're nationwide. Oh, right. So, okay. um, but please do <laughs> pop an email to Karen. It is very interesting. The, that was a nice twister you put in there at the end. Wandile, the email address is law at safm.co.za. Won't you just drop us a line and I'll forward it on to Marlon. Certainly. Okay, thank, thank you, you very much Great for getting question. through. Bye-bye. Good night to you. I have to apologize to Bojo, Del, Keith and Musa. Unfortunately, the program's only an hour, and as we said at the beginning, it seems to just disappear in a puff of smoke. So sorry about that. And we've got about 45 seconds. Marlon, very briefly, literally two seconds, 
two more seminars coming up. Durban yep. and Cape Durban Town, the Joburg one. Correct. Joburg, done. 13th of March. Durban, 23rd of April. Cape Town, 9th of May. My big University of Cape Town endorsed advanced residential rental seminar. It's, seats are filling up quickly. Time to book now. I just okay. want to send a thank you out to my two candidate attorneys who have now qualified as attorneys. So we are now four attorneys strong. So okay, and keep an eye on the Facebook page. We'll have all yep. the information about that there. Well, my thanks once again this evening to Marlon Chevalu. He's an attorney practicing in Cape Town as Marlon Chevalu and Associates. And he's been my guest on tonight's edition of The Law Report. If you'd like to let us know about any legal issue or topic you'd like us to discuss here, you can email me at law at safm.co.za. And don't forget to take a look at the Facebook page. It's Law on SAFM. The Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10. And in the program next week, we'll be discussing labor law with Michael Bagram. That's The Law Report next Monday, the 4th of March.